Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pints! My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon, welcome to Flavour. I'm Matt Bentman, bringing you food and drink stories from Cambridge with Alan Alder and Sue Bailey. We are desperate to reopen. We've now been operational as a takeaway nearly for as long as we were as a new restaurant. That was Alex Rushmer from Vanderlyle, and we'll be hearing from him shortly. We'll also be hearing from Cambridge Sustainable Food about Grow a Row, an initiative that you can get involved in which provides food for their emergency programme. I'll be braving the cold weather to talk with Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, about whether it's worth pulling on our woolly hats and going outside for a quick forage. And if you've ventured outside and need to get home and warm up quickly, our resident chef Rosie Sykes has some hot soup ideas for you. We also have allotment here, Dave Fox, who'll be advising on how to grow potatoes successfully. And you don't need a garden to do it. And as usual, we will have plenty of local food and drink news. Let's begin with restaurants. And with a significant drop in COVID-19 cases and high numbers of people being vaccinated, we thought we'd be optimistic and start to think about their reopening. They face a tricky future, though. They've been shut a long time, many with little or no income. And will people be willing to pile in when they do reopen? I spoke with Mark Poynton of MJP Restaurants, Alex Rushma of Vanderlyle and Alex Kreppi of Amelie about their thinking. Alex Rushma had concerns about what the budget might bring next month. Will the reduced VAT rate on food be retained? That would help restaurants, especially if it's accompanied by a reduction in business rates. But even assuming there is a reduction and restaurants are able to open again, what will they be like? Will there be lots of people, lots of tables, maybe close together, or will there be limits? How close can they be? Here are Mark Poynton, followed by Alex Rushma, and then Alex Kreppi. I don't think you'll ever see restaurants like we used to. We haven't got that many tables here anyway, and we never had that in the business plan. But I don't think you'll go back to the days of, you know, I think we can say it because he's bankrupt now, Jamie Oliver, where you're squeezing a thousand people into a small space. I think those <laughs> days are long gone. New York has just reopened for indoor dining, but at 25% capacity. Mm. So for, for a restaurant like Vandalile, that represents between six and eight covers, which is, it doesn't take a, <laughs> it, it doesn't take a, a mathematician or, or an accountant to work out that that's not, that's not a sustainable business models they won't open restaurants fully whenever we get to reopen anyway so there'll be there'll be a lot of precautions that we'll need to take care of and i think that will reassure people i know that in america they're starting to talk about um cleaner um extraction within the restaurant for air um so that it's it's safer for people and i think there's talks of that coming into the uk as well so there, there might be some more uh, protocols to take 
So what are the alternatives? Will indoor dining and takeaways need to coexist? Mark Poynton, then Alex Rushma and Alex Screpi again. Well, there's two thought processes. There's the thought process of we're going to open and we're going to fill the place up and we're going to be better than you were before. You're talking generally, not just about me. And there's the thought process of we've made a business of doing takeaway, so you might as well carry on because a lot of those customers wouldn't come on a week-to-week basis anyway. But I suppose the flip side of it is that if you do takeaway like we do, it's not the same food that we serve in the restaurant. And I think all our customers know that. Uh, so there's two different options there for them. So if they want a takeaway option, there's that. And if they want to come to the restaurant, there's that as well. Uh, so we're definitely going to carry it on as long as there's demand. And when we came out of the last lockdown, we was, there was still demand for it. So we carried on. So we'll do the same. And if that drops off, then we'll stop. So it's... It, it's entirely up to the customer, I think, and what they want. Uh, I don't believe we're all going to get vaccinated any time this year. So I do believe that a lot of people won't have the confidence to go out as well. So I think that will play a part. We have talked about whether or not the, the delivery model or the collection model can be run in conjunction with the traditional restaurant model. We've, we've sort of ebbed and flowed as to, as to our enthusiasm for it. And... Whether or not we have the capacity or whether or not we have the, 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 the person power to, to actually do it properly as well as operate full time. So we, we, would, we would cook for 26 people a, a night in the restaurant and we, we had to turn very, very quickly into, uh, into a catering operation that, would, that was able to cook for 100 people a day. So we were literally doing four times the number of, of covers, so to speak. And there's, there's logistical issues that go with that. Things like storage. We had to buy extra fridges. And who knows we'll, whether we'll be able to make use of that. What I think the future holds is a very, very flexible approach. You know, looking at what's happening in, in places like Israel when they're announcing lockdowns with less than 24 hours notice. And having seen the surge in cases over the winter, it's clear that COVID-19 is a, a seasonal respiratory illness that will ebb and flow with the seasons. It's not, it's not going anywhere. It's, it's certainly here to stay. And I think, uh, I think the, shrewd, the shrewd operators will know that they have to be in a position where they have to be flexible, where they can either offer both in dining experience uh, and a takeaway or delivery option, or be able to turn their restaurant very quickly within 24, 48 hours. Uh, They will have to be able to turn their kitchen into a a delivery or collection facility at very, very short notice. We'll never stop the deliveries. We'll never stop collections. That's a new part of the business. I think that's a new model that most restaurants will be taking up on. I think a lot of people are more comfortable ordering meal kits and deliveries for their homes. They've appealed to a large demographic now, but they're not just for the young professionals or the students that um, have a bit of money and they just can't be bothered to cook. Um, I mean, it's just, it is really just covering the cost at the moment, but it's, it's getting the product out to the customer, isn't it? It's, it's advertising and the UK wide, we're, we're able to send packages to Scotland, Wales, London, customers that would never actually come to Cambridge to eat our food perhaps in the past. So if you offer both, will restaurants make more money than before the pandemic? And isn't there a limit to how many takeaways the market will sustain? Here's Mark Poynton. I don't think they'll make more money. They will 
make the shortfall in the lesser amount of tables. So they'll probably be on the same. But the only problem is that we could have a diluted product, you know, because every restaurant will be doing takeaway and restaurant food as well. You know, and we, all, and we already know the high streets packed with takeaway restaurants and so on and so forth. I think we just really need to see see what happens when we come out of this. You know, we, we offer something quite bespoke. So I think we'll be okay with our takeaway. But I think if you're just a normal pub and you're offering fish and chips and burgers, then I don't think you've got anything to offer that anyone else offers. So if you're offering rather standard fare, there's a great deal of competition. Exactly, yeah. And I don't think, and unless you're cut out to do that at mass numbers, which a pub and a restaurant isn't, I don't think they're going to succeed at that, you know. I wondered how restaurants cope with both indoor dining and takeaways. Aren't extra staff needed? Mark Poynton explains. Uh, not Well, it depends how you do it. We don't need extra staff. We're only open three and a half days a week anyway, uh, Thursday through till Sunday lunch. So what we do is we all work four days and our extra half a day is on a Wednesday where we would prep for our takeaway menu, which would be delivered on a Thursday. So, and then obviously then come in Thursday and do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at the restaurant. Uh, so that's how it works for us. Other restaurants, I have no idea, to be honest with you. <laughs> I yeah. wouldn't even want to think of what the consequences of it. Are some people doing rather well out of this? Gary Usher owner of Elite Bistros in the northwest of England, had a nice review of his delivered meal kits in The Guardian recently, and his £140 per couple Valentine's meal has sold out. So some seem to be winning. Yeah, definitely. And I think those social media savvy types uh, which get that are winning, definitely. And obviously I know Gary personally, and Gary's looking for a what we call a dark kitchen now to carry on with that once he can reopen. And I think if you can do that, then it's amazing. We're, in fact, we're, we're still flying with it. We've, you know, over 100 meals this week, nearly 150 meals next week for Valentine's already. So thank you to everybody that supported us and hopefully see you on the other side. Another beneficiary of a favourable mention in the press is Amelie. Jay Rayner wrote about it in The Observer. Did that help? It, yeah, I mean, it helps. I mean, just before Christmas as well. And we've been told uh, that we were going to get mentioned and... Um, on the Sunday and then in the morning I checked checked the website and the sales and it was just through the roof and it was great we're really really happy <laughs> it was um it was a it was an early Christmas present I think it was on the 21st it was a Sunday just before Christmas and it was very very well um very well received deliveries and takeaways are clearly keeping the wolf from the door but are they looking forward to having people back in the restaurant and we're all and we are desperate to reopen as well we've now been operational nearly for as a, as a takeaway nearly for as long as we were as a as a, as a new restaurant which is mm, is wow. crazy to me um we've not we've not served a customer in in the restaurant since uh, march the 14th uh of 2020 which is rapid we're rapidly approaching the the, fir- the the first anniversary of that admittedly we've been very very cautious we were very very cautious for the whole of last year we didn't reopen at all uh, and we, we we stuck to the the takeout model rigidly throughout the whole of last year, lockdown or or otherwise. We didn't participate in eat out to help out, and I was quite um, I was quite vocal about my my thoughts and my reasoning behind that. I honestly don't know when we will be able to to reopen as a as a restaurant. I suspect yeah. that it'll be some point late spring, early summer, and I suspect that it won't be. Uh, 
don't think it will be a gradual rollout. I think it will be a here it is. You can you can open the doors again and um, be sensible. Limit capacity. Make sure you're taking every necessary precaution. But as 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 always, going forward, we'll be we'll be very cautious. We'll be very careful. Uh, we will put the health and well-being of, of the staff and the customers very much at the priority uh, of what we do. And if that means that we have to remain as a as a takeout service for a little bit longer. Uh, then, then we will. So, when is Vanderlyle likely to reopen for takeaways? <laughs> well, we we initially said we were going to take take three weeks off, uh, and then we uh, we looked at the we looked at the figures, we looked at what was happening. We said we'll we'll actually take off the whole of January, and we'll see how the see how the land is lying in in February. Um, we didn't we didn't really have the stomach for doing it for sort of another six months potentially if we'd reopened at the start of January so we held back a little bit we have actually been back in the kitchen I'm, I'm pleased to say uh, we had our first research and development a couple of days this week so we're, we're, we're actually working on new dishes at the moment new dishes for the tasting menu actually rather than the the takeout menu which is which is very very exciting and and being able to to cook with the cook with the team again has been absolutely wonderful i suspect that we will we will reopen for for takeout at some point in the next four or five weeks but Mm. um, no 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 rigid plans to do so just yet and alex crepe has made use of the lockdown time to think about what's on offer at amelie and make a few changes We've, we've made a lot of changes in Amelie restaurants over the lockdown and, and lockdowns allowed us to think creatively. So we can either sit down and wait for the lockdowns to be finished and just reopen as normal and that's business as usual. And, but I, I don't think, I think people's tastes have changed. I think people's expectations have changed, whether it's with the service or the way that the restaurant's laid out or the product that we're serving. Um, and w- it's allowed us to, to think outside of the box look at the business on a different point of view and say okay what can we do to improve what product can we offer to the customers that makes it more apt and also what we can integrate within the online store as well and um these changes um updating the menu putting some smaller plates making more all day dining accessible to all ages um before it was quite specialized towards the flame um the skinny pizzas although we've still got that as our core product we've got a few other dishes as well that we'd like to bring out and more european dining at the end of the first lockdown we were um thinking it was the end of lockdowns and we've gone through two more since then so anything could change yes it could that was alex crepe and you also heard mark poynton and alex rushma and how nice it will be when restaurants do reopen However, there is good food available from a lot of them on collection or delivery. Uh, We had a very good meal last weekend from Provenance. And a little update. Mark Poynton talked about selling 150 Valentine's meals in that piece. It later went up to an even more impressive more than 200. On to our first news break now, beginning with food trucks. These are out tonight, Saturday, but do pre-order very soon if you want anything from them. At Thirsty in Chesterton Road, there is Buffalo Joe's. At Hobson Square in Trumpington, it's the Wandering Yak. Steak and Honour are on the green at North Stowe from 5 till 8. And at the same time, their other van is at the Queen's Head in Newton. Also today, Saturday, the Queen's Head in Newton has some of Crafty Beers Carpenter's Cask Ale. And it's delivering it locally, so contact them if you want to buy some. Some street food dates next week now. 
Gorilla Kitchen is at the King Bill Pub in Histon from 12 till 2 next Wednesday, the 17th of February, and at the Square in Northstow from 5 to 8, also on Wednesday. On Friday the 19th, they're at Hobson Square in Trumpington from 12 till 2, and the Cherry Tree in Haddenham from 5 till 8. Next Saturday, it's the Willow Tree in Bourne from 5 till 8, so do remember to pre-order from the Gorilla Kitchen website for all of those dates. At Hobson Square in Clay Farm, Trumpington, on Tuesday it's Pizza Passione in the evening, on Wednesday Sam's Thai, Thursday Kirif Catering, Friday Ahazar and the Churros Bar, and Saturday night Pulmi Sherry. They're all evening dates. And we'll have more news shortly, but now on to our next feature. Back in the Second World War, there were plenty of digging for victory posters, encouraging us all to do our bit for the nation and grow plenty of fruit and veg. In a similar fashion, Cambridge Sustainable Food have launched Grow a Row. Now, whether you're an experienced gardener or you have a few pots on your windowsill, everybody can get involved. Here's Sam Dyer, the Food Partnership CEO of Cambridge Sustainable Food, to tell us a little bit about Grow a Row. This started very small, really. We just put a shout out last April, May time for anybody who might be growing anything to grow a row or to put some extra seeds in or to make a donation. And that snowballed a bit so much as people have really clubbed together. So neighbours in George Street in Cambridge have organised to contribute as a whole group. So households all along that street have been donating produce, but they also set up windowsill herbs to donate to the the local food hubs. Uh, There are food hubs throughout the city. There's eight of them that are active, distributing food to people. This was a way of giving people a a pot of herbs to take home and grow on their windowsill. Mm. From further afield, Triplo, there's a community project called Coveg by one of the local farmers there who kindly contributed two fields to his local community. One he cultivates himself, the other, which was named Chaos Garden, cultivated by the members of the community there. So they brought in large successive harvests, huge numbers of pumpkins late autumn, and then various plot holders from across the city allotments to their local hub. And then on a larger scale, potentially not really the Grow Row, but I really want to mention, which are local farms donating produce mm. as well. So Fenn Farm in Cottenham, who deliver vegetables most weeks during the summer. They work with the Headway organisation, supporting people with brain injuries um, who volunteered at the farm to grow the vegetables. And then, of course, you must have heard of Co Farm, um, oh, yeah, which is yeah. Cambridge's newest community farm. And they donated all their produce last year to food hubs i think an individual donor even cycled up with a 17 kilogram pumpkin in the bike trailer (laughs) another one donated 20 kilos of plums so many different ways to contribute and help the cause that cause being to help struggling families get access to lots of fruit and veg locally grown too so if you fancy donning your gardening gloves and being a bit of a percy thrower now is a great time to start Last growing season, what came out of people's gardens and the allotments rather than the farms, there was something like two tonnes of fruit and veg donated. So this spring, it's about planting time now. So we're encouraging people to go for it, grow some vegetables. A quick bit about Cambridge Sustainable Food and who they are. If you're a long-time listener, you'll probably know. But if you've just found flavour on the dial or you're listening online for the first time, here's some background. 
Cambridge Sustainable Food are the lead organisation for the Food Poverty Alliance. Now, the Food Poverty Alliance is a group of frontline organisations that have come together to collaborate on food poverty. So pre-COVID, we'd written an action plan that had been fully endorsed by the City Council. And this action plan looked at food poverty across the city. So it was more broad than just the emergency food response. It tackled some of the issues such as making sure that people had access to healthy start vouchers and free school meals if they needed it, you know, whether people were able to access holiday hunger programmes. The alliance made up of organisations such as the Cambridge City Council, Cambridge Food Bank, Cambridge Housing Society, Cambridge United Charitable Trust. Red Hen Project, quite a few of the churches where the food hubs are, are held, but also the Kareem Foundation based at the mosque, the Cambridge Ethnic Community Forum. So the list goes on of the organisations that are, are behind this alliance and the project. So it actually proved that some of the places that there were food poverty alliances in existence, they have been able to react to the emergency situation and the pandemic quicker, faster and better than areas of the country where there haven't been alliances. Let's make no bones. There is a consistent demand for food. There has been before the pandemic and it is still the case a year on. Grow a Row is a fun and worthy initiative that is one of the newest parts of the Cambridge emergency food response. I'm hopeful. I think there's been so much community expression of wanting to come together. Yeah. Be that through the mutual aid groups or through the community food hubs. It feels like there could be hope as soon as we're allowed out. I like the adaptation that's going on as well. On your website, it's mentioned about Food Cycle. I was I, I lasted a Food Cycle event five years ago, I think, uh, recording there. And even now, it says on your website, you know, the Food Cycle used to take food from the supermarkets that would otherwise go into landfill, use it to create a hot meal. COVID means that you can't do that. But, you know, recently they've been collecting food to create food parcels for distribution. Um, that's right. Even in our last episode, I met a lady. She was concerned about simply not having the time to donate the food to a food hub. So she started her own initiative up for everybody on her street to collect food and she would collect it on their behalf and then take it to the food hub. Isn't Just things fantastic. like that. It's great. Yeah. There's still people coming up with fresh ideas and, yeah. and it's really good. So many things going on. It's incredible. Yeah, it's a big success story, I feel, in this, this city. The Christmas Hamper Project was fantastic. At Christmas, we work with lots of different agencies Cambridge Food Bank do a hamper each year but this year we collaborated you know we did 500 hampers with fresh vegetables and a, a game and a toy that went out to 500 families this year so yeah the the level of collaboration is great that was Sam Dyer of Cambridge Sustainable Food and their Grow a Row initiative so if you have a spare patch in your garden or you've only got space for a few herbs on a windowsill you will be providing a much needed service all of the info that you need about Grow a Row can be found online at their website, cambridgesustainablefood.org. Now, if you click on their section called Emergency Food, you'll find the article on Grow a Row, which is full of great guides for first-time growers, people growing without a garden, even resources for schools. And if you fancy signing up and doing your bit, then contact them via email, info at cambridgesustainablefood.org. Also, if you know someone who is struggling to afford food, please refer them to the Cambridge Sustainable Food phone line because they can help. The number is 01223 967 426. 
Cambridge code, I'll say it again, 01223 967 426. Is where we bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge. Uh, the information about what's available and where to get it from comes from the Olio app, which is free to download. And some examples of what's been recently available locally on the Olio app are some fresh fruit and veg, and from Tesco, some Swedes, bread, bananas, and pastries. Again, all from Tesco, all rather annoyingly wrapped in plastic. Um, there's baguettes too. Also available were fusilli pasta, two bags of limes, a bottle of Filippo Berto balsamic vinegar, and plenty of other items. And another free app called Too Good To Go has unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. And rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of being binned at the end of the day's trading. Recently, magic bags have been available from the Eclipse Bakery in Mill Road, the Cambridge Oven in Hills Road and Tradizioni at the station. Well, what a cold week it's been. The temperature reached minus 6 degrees at 5am in central Cambridge on Thursday morning. It made us think of warming soups and who better to get some ideas from than Rosie Sykes. I'm a big fan of soup, I must say. And with all the root vegetables, it's a perfect time and there are some really fantastic combinations. I'm really lucky. I've still got beetroot in my garden. So I've been digging that and um, making beetroot and apple soup with a little bit of horseradish in, which is absolutely delicious. But I suppose what we should do is just start with what I think makes a really good basis for a soup, because then really the world is your oyster. Um, Well, the world is your soup terrine, let's say. So for me, one of the main principles of soup making is to start with a decent amount of fat because some people will add cream or milk towards the end of a soup but I find that if you start with a good amount of fat you're incorporating that richness right at the beginning and it 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 gets into all the ingredients so it makes for a much more rounded soup and so I would normally start with a really good chunk of butter really good chunk of butter and a splash of oil just so the butter doesn't burn. And then I would usually, depending on what the soup is, go for a good couple of onions, red or white, uh, sweat those down for 10 minutes with some salt on a very low heat with a lid on. So they get lovely and sweet and they melt themselves into whatever fat. You could, by the way, use a really, really generous glug of light olive oil or a nut oil mixed with another oil, any any kind of oil or fat, really. And then depending again on what, what your end product is going to be, I would pro- possibly add some leek, maybe a bit of celery, maybe some carrots, and let that cook away with the onions. Then throw in garlic, maybe ginger. At this point, you could add spices. And then your sort of main ingredients so say that was beetroot celeriac sweet potato pumpkin you know the world honestly all those wonderful vegetables out there it's absolutely perfect and then with root vegetables I tend to go for quite a smooth soup so I would then stick blend it when everything's wonderfully soft I would stick blend it 
so you get a really nice smooth finish because I just think especially with lots of fat that's the nicest way to go but then there's a whole other raft of soups I've I've made the sweet mulligatawny which is a wonderful wonderful soup which is essentially again sweated onions lots of spices turmeric cumin coriander maybe garam masala in my last one, I put um, some onion seeds, some mustard seeds, really up to you. I'm sure there is a proper set thing in a mulligatawny, and I'm not quite sure what it is, but but um, certainly always turmeric, cumin, coriander, and chili, garlic, ginger, a bit of chili. Uh, I tend to put in fresh chilies if I have them. And I also put in some desiccated or flaked coconut at the beginning, and let that cook in with the spices. Then uh, some orange lentils, uh, some tin tomato, you know, not a whole tin probably, and some stock. Let that cook away. And then I just finish it with some lime juice and chopped coriander. And that is a very warming soup. And another really delicious a soup meeting a stew, but I do it as a soup often, is a, is a Herrera was a North African stew, which they often eat when they're, when they're breaking their fast during Ramadan, because it's very, very carb heavy. It has rice, lentils and chickpeas in it. So it's a wonderful filling dish, a pot sticker, let's say. A similar plan, you start with a load of onions, maybe add a pepper if you've got it, add some squash or some sweet potato, because generally it's made with lamb or chicken. So, um, and you could do that if you wanted to, and then add some tinned tomatoes, some stock, let that all cook away, add some lentils, let that cook a bit more, and then add chickpeas. And then the idea is that you just throw in at, towards the end, a handful of rice or a small amount, a very small amount of rice and just let that very slowly cook in. And then it's nice to leave it if you can, for 12 hours for the rice to completely sort of take on all the other ingredients, everything to get to know each other, and then reheat it with a little relish, which you make by just whizzing up coriander, ginger, and I put some lemon zest and juice in and a little bit of oil. Uh, So that's a lovely one. There's so many delicious things. And then you've got all the options of what you can have alongside the soup. And Rosie will be back a little later on in the programme with those ideas. And, by the way, if you're out and about in the Mill Road area and need warming up, Culinaris is selling tubs of spicy Aztec chilli and cinnamon drinking chocolate, which sounds just the job. And nothing to do with keeping warm, but while you're in there, look out for the fresh truffles they've just got in. That's something really special. We've a two-minute break coming up, then we'll be back with the foraging chef, more from Rosie Sykes, growing potatoes with Dave Fox and more food news. Cambridge 105 Radio. In 1960s Cambridge, you might have shopped at Joshua Taylor, gone roller skating at the Corn Exchange and seen the Beatles perform live at the Regal Cinema. On Sunday mornings, John Gannon takes you back in time with hits and memories from the swinging decade. John Gannon's 60s scene, Sundays at 8am on the station that's live and local. Cambridge 105 Radio. 
Looking to buy a new home this summer but it feels out of reach? Then getting on the property ladder just isn't an option for you. Think again. New homes in Haverhill and Cottenham are available now with shared ownership, with your mortgage deposit as low as from £4,000. The final two and three bedroom homes at Bower Place and Boyton Place also have exclusive incentive packages available worth over £2,500. With £1,000 shopping vouchers, £500 towards your solicitor's fees and three months rent-free, book your viewing today to find out what's on offer. Reserve from just £99 and find your new home this summer. Think shared ownership, think complete moves. Visit complete-moves.co.uk or call 020-3640-7111 today. Terms and conditions apply. Need dropping off at work? Miss the bus and must make that urgent appointment. Need picking up after a night out with your mates? Panther Taxis is your Cambridge-based taxi firm with over 700 drivers, offering great rates and local knowledge, ensuring you make it quickly and safely to your destination. We don't inflate our prices at peak times, and all our drivers accept payments by cash or card. Book your taxi the easy way. Download our free Panther Taxis app through your app store and start booking your taxis on the go. Call Cambridge 715715 or see panthertaxis.co.uk. Panther Taxis, your local quick, reliable and friendly taxi company in the city. Cambridge 105 Radio Welcome back to Flavour on Cambridge 105 Radio. And after the warming soup ideas from Rosie Sykes before the break, perhaps we can all contemplate going out foraging. Steve Thompson has some ideas for what to look for. You can still forage, yeah. It's um, slowed certain things. So, for instance, I was really hoping that if we'd had a slightly warmer week this week rather than this snow, that the wild garlic in Cambridgeshire, the Allium ertinum, would be coming through now, through in a lot of other areas of the country. It was starting to shoot up around Christmas time, so I was really hopeful for an early season. That's been slowed by the snow. Once the snow goes, we should start to see that coming through. We should start to see a lot of the spring flowers coming through. So we'll get things like primroses and violets coming through. And we'll start to get all the little shoots and everything. This last week, there's been four things that we've been foraging, really. The first is an allium. It's crow's garlic, allium vineale, which is a wonderful one. Lots of people confuse it for chives. It looks exactly like that. You'll see it growing on the edge of hedgerows, down the streets. We pick a lot of it from outside the school in the village I live in. The easiest way to tell it, apart from chives, is the fact that it smells of garlic. As with all alliums, you you want to leave the bulbs in the ground, so cut it just above the bulb and then that will reshoot and keep growing. But it's a wonderful plant. We use that much in the same way as you could chives. We have also, this year, we've dried a load out and then charred it and made a really nice crow's garlic ash, which gives a lovely smoky garlicky powder to use as seasonings for steaks and things like that. We also make an oil out of it, and then we can preserve that, use that for making mayonnaises, things like that. Another good use, again, if you're making the oil, is pestos. We've been doing that with hazelnuts, which is a really good pairing. So crow's garlic and hazelnut pesto is well worth a go. Shelf life for the oils and pestos. I would say give them three days sort of thing in your fridge to be safe. And then after that, the best way to store them is to keep them in your freezer. They'll retain great colour. They'll retain perfect flavour. And you can freeze an oil? Yep, it won't freeze hard. It'll solidify is the best way to put it. It just won't degrade, basically. So we tend to make wild garlic oils when that comes through and we'll keep them all year round in the freezer. Whereas in the fridge, you start to run a botulism risk, albeit very small after three days. The longer it's in the fridge for, 
after that, the more the risk obviously goes up. I would yeah, recommend freezer as the easiest yeah. way. The other thing as well with freezers is, is that when you're freezing oils, it doesn't have the same issues as you would do, say, freezing a meat or something like that. Because if you think what it's doing is it's freezing the water molecules, say, for instance, which is why it only solidifies an oil because it chills it. So when you're freezing a meat, the water molecules freeze in the cells and they'll expand. So obviously ice water expands when you freeze it. That then creates pockets when it defrosts and that's what brings an issue with freezing certain meats and certain fishes. But therefore you don't get that with things like oils. So it really doesn't change the quality of it at all. And of course, sort of commercially frozen meats and fish they very fast freeze don't yeah, they exactly and another way around it, actually if you want to do that at home with meats and fishes is to salt it for 20 minutes first we don't tend to freeze any of our white fish but i do tend to salt it when it comes in because it, it firms that flesh up a little bit and it takes the water out so 20 minutes with table salt and then wash it off and you've got a much firmer bit of fish but if you wanted to freeze it do the same thing and that will help get rid of half of your issues when mm. defrosting that's a very useful tip indeed Probably if you're freezing oils, freeze them in sort of small zip freezer bags and for pestos, freeze in ice cube trays. Yeah, that's perfect. Exactly that. Whatever you think you're going to use them in and then it's easy. So ice cube trays are great with things like pestos because you're not going to use a huge amount of time. Um, Other things we've been foraging at the moment, we'll clump these next two together because they're both mushrooms. And they're the only ones that are really around at the moment. You might find more, but especially around Cambridgeshire, we've got the uh, velvet shanks and we've got the wood ears or jelly ears. And both of them are in abundance at the moment. We picked, or we picked kilos of velvet shanks this last week, which have been absolutely wonderful for our little larder at home that will keep us going throughout this, uh, throughout the next couple of months. At this time of the year, they're quite distinguishable. You're not really going to have any other nasties. You shouldn't do. Earlier in the year, they can be around at the same time as the funeral bell. That uh, doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> it's not a good one. So it's one to, well, don't, yeah, don't avoid it. Learn it. So with the velvet shanks, you're looking for white spores, white gills. You're looking for no ring on the stem. They have a slimy cap on the top and they also have a stem which is very fibrous. So you can wrap it around your finger without it breaking. And it also goes from dark to light as the stem, it goes up the stem. And it has a velvety texture, hence the common name. But if you learn it, it's not a mushroom that is particularly scary. The other thing that we've been picking, obviously, is the wood ears, which are, I think, very easy to identify and are around a lot at the moment. So with, with the velvet shanks, we are drying them out. They're worth drying out whole if you're going to turn them into a powder. If you want to rehydrate them and put them in stews or things like that, then just do the caps. Because as I said, the stems are very fibrous. So unless you're going to powder them, there's not a lot of use. You're just going to get them caught in your teeth. Other things to do, you can pickle the caps. We're working on something at the moment where we're dehydrating them for a certain length of time at a certain temperature, and it's bringing out some real dark chocolate qualities in them. So that's something we're playing around with at the moment. It's not quite right, but it's not far off. And it'll probably be something for the recipe book when that comes out in the future. You were saying that the crow's garlic is a member of the allium family, so presumably wild garlic is something that's going to be coming on fairly soon. And is that part of the same family as well? Yes, it is, yeah. Wild garlic's allium ursinum. And that will be coming through at any time now. It's, yeah, definitely part of the same family. Again, same time of year, there's three other things that normally grow around it that are worth learning, so you don't pick. You've got your bluebells, you've got your lily of the valley, so, uh, and you've got your dog's mercury. And I think all three look quite different. The only one that really looks similar, I would say, is the lily of the valley when it's shooting through. But smell. And the leaves are different in texture, aren't they? Yes, the leaves are different. Basically, if you turn the leaf over, 
on the wild garlic it will have lines that go from base to tip of the leaf going upwards whereas if you turn the arum over it will look like cracked ice sorry so, that's the lily of the valley lily of the yeah. valley yes so if you turn that over it will look like cracked ice it'll be a lighter color than the front of the leaf and it will have that kind of smashed effect on the back smell is the key however once you do have start to have allium kind of oils that come from the plant on your skin it's quite easy to just think that that's the plant you're smelling do take that into account now smell smell i think is the easiest and the key identification with that however mm. make sure it's coming from the plant and not from your fingers still do they grow in close proximity yeah then? they'll grow right next to each other and literally intertwined so, so are lily of the valley leaves dangerous then yeah they're known as toxic i mean it's because of their oxalate crystals that grow on them you're not going to get them really down to do any damage because they would set your mouth on fire and be very very painful if you did get them down your throat, the real danger is the damage it does to your throat and swelling up. And they're one to learn. Once you get to know them, they're not they're not hugely similar, but they are when they curl up at the beginning. So it's just that's when the time to check is. I don't think I've ever foraged them when they've been that young. I've never realised that there could be a risk. So thank you very much indeed for that, Steve. And we're also beginning in springtime or the beginnings of spring to perhaps see some flowers coming. I've noticed in my neighbour's gardens that the primroses are starting to come through now. So that'll be a nice one. We'll make some primrose wine when that comes through, hopefully in the next few weeks. There'll be uh, violets starting to come through. The dog violets will be through not too far away, I reckon. The leaves are definitely up. We should hopefully be starting to get new uh, shoots of the spring ground ivy through, which is part of the mint family again. We've had that through. We've got the autumn one through at the moment, which is better dried as a pot herb. But these spring ones, you pick the leaves and you can eat them a lot fresher. They're a lot softer and younger. Kind of a flavour, kind of like a mix between mint and sage. It's a crude way of describing it. But it goes really well in desserts as well with lots of things like chocolates and stuff like that we do it. And the interesting thing that we've been picking at the moment that's a bit different, and it's actually our first year of doing it, is the catkins from alder trees. That's an interesting one. The alder's quite a nice, easy one to identify because it's the only one at the moment that has catkins and cones at the same time. Oh, and the cones are those very small, sort of almost thumbnail-sized, crinkly little cones, aren't they? Yes, exactly that. They're the female part of the plant, and then the catkin is the male part of the plant. And that's a key identification. They like a lot of water at the moment, so we're finding that all of ours are on waterlogged playing fields near us, but close to rivers and things like that. And the main key to them is, I mean, they're seen as a famine food, the catkins. They're actually a great source of protein. So we wanted to try and have a play around with it and taste them straight off the tree. I mean, you do not want to chew them when they come straight off the tree. They are so bitter. But they've got this wonderful perfumey. It's very hard to explain flavour to it. So I'm going to have a play around with it over the next few weeks and try and nail what I think the flavour is. It was something that was interesting to us. So what we've done is we've taken them, we've brought them up to the boil three times, changing the water in between each time to try and get rid of some of that bitterness into the water. And it seems to have worked. So what we've done after that is that we've dehydrated and then blended them into a flour. And at the moment, that flower's just got the most incredible kind of perfumey. There's definitely notes of celery and pepper in there as well. And it's just trying to work out what it is. So we're going to have a play around with it with a little steam sponge pudding dish this week. So if you keep an eye on my social media, that should be up in the next few days. And then we're going to go from there and try and find some new ideas to play around with it. But it's a great ingredient. How did you find out the fact it was famine food? I was reading up about it. I mean... I'm always reading up about different things, but it was uh, it was on an American website and they use it a bit more over there. Famine food is often used to describe things that are edible, but you wouldn't want to eat. So you can eat them, you wouldn't want to. I think with a little bit of work, which isn't too much to be honest, to boil something three times and get rid of the water and dry it out, time frame 
that took 24 hours, but actual physical hands-on labour, five minutes, and maybe mm. maybe another five minutes of blending it all. Not that hard to do, and yeah, it's got great amounts of protein in it, which are quite hard to find at certain times of the year, especially like now. Is it the pollen that's giving it the interesting aroma, or do you think it's the pollen plus the actual catkin element itself? I think it's both, because... What we've found is we've used the firmer catkins at the moment because we felt they had more flavour. The, the younger trees seem to have firmer catkins on them at the moment. And then the older trees, the catkins were much thinner and much more wobbly. And we've kind of left them because after a little taste test on them, we felt that the flavour was... It wasn't nothing, but it was a lot milder. What we tend to want is a lot of punch, something to really shine. So we got it from the much firmer catkins, yeah. So I imagine then that means that a large amount of it comes from the pollen. As but well. the pollen's still enclosed in the catkin rather yeah. than being, as was very fashionable a, a year or two ago, the actual dusting of pollen. Oh, or, yeah. yeah. No, we'll be doing that when the pine comes out, your fennel and things like that, you collect the pollen, but we tend to do it in slightly different ways. So when the pine buds come out, we tend to dry the pine buds out and make that into a flower rather than shaking the pollen out of it because then you get the whole flavour. It's a lot more balanced. So there's really quite a lot of things to be thinking about foraging-wise, Steve. It's lovely the fact that there's a bit of snow and a bit of sun. We could just look forward to the spring and to talking to you in March. Yes, spring will be the way to look forward to it. That was the foraging chef, Steve Thompson. And you can keep up with what Steve makes from his foraging finds by following him on Instagram. And that piece of music signals time for the Twitter news. We have to pre-record our programmes now because of limited access to the Cambridge 105 radio studios as a result of the virus. So we can't bring you the latest tweets, but we can tell you that you can follow Flavour on Twitter where we are at Flavour 105. And we're on Instagram too, where you can find us at Flavour 105. now to Rosie Sykes and Soup, where Rosie suggests what to eat with your soup and ways of cooking it whilst you're out, so it's ready waiting for you on your return home. You know, a lovely cheese scone or um, some soda bread. I I made some bread this week using quinoa, because I've got a huge amount of donated quinoa to me, and I'm cooking at the moment for a community fridge in Harston, just for a few people every week. So I ground the quinoa and mix it with a little tiny bit of plain flour and um, to make it more exciting, some cheese. And I had some whey left over from making some fresh cheese and just made a bread with some seeds. And it was so easy and it was really delicious. So I think there are quite a few exciting options to go with your soup, I would say. But yeah, I do think that soup at this time of the year... Um, a, a lot of people put it in their slow cookers and go out and, you know, if it's a lovely day like this and you want to go for a walk or go out um, into your garden to do whatever needs doing or chop some wood, do something hearty. What a nice thing to be able to come back and find your slow cooker has soup ready for you. Uh, and the other way, Alan, another nice way to make soup, which, again, you can sort of leave it to it, is... Um, put it all into a roasting tray. So some onions, some whole cloves of garlic, 
I normally chop up, say, a quarter of a lemon into tiny pieces, a squash, a sweet potato. What I do with that is I would start it off with some oil and, and seasoning and give it about 15 minutes for everything to just have a little time to soften on a, on a, on a medium heat. Then I would probably add a little bit of liquid, be that it could be apple juice, it could be water, it could be stock, not a huge amount, but enough that all the veg can cook down without getting too brown. A bit of caramelization is going to add a nice sweetness. And I also forgot to say, you know, all those lovely hard herbs are always great to put in when you're doing the cooking and then you can always fish them out. Um, so rosemary, bay, thyme, savory, all those things are, are really lovely in the soup, I think. And that was Rosie Sykes, whose current book, Roasting Pan Suppers, is available from bookshops. More news now. Hot food from Sea Tree, the alternative chippy in Mill Road, is now available for delivery by Foodstuff. Novi in Regent Street has cocktails available via Click It Local, and The Plough in Great Shelford has street food back on Wednesdays, so just check their social media accounts for details. Cambridge Cookery of Hills Road has gourmet meals for collection or delivery. This weekend's sold out by Tuesday, but the menu for next weekend is on Instagram now, and what a good menu it is. It includes bouillabaisse, both fish and vegetarian, and one of the desserts is a delicious-sounding Seville orange tart. Good news for bagel lovers. Alex and his bagel box are back on Cambridge Market. He's there on Sundays and from Tuesdays to Thursdays, selling very good unfilled bagels. And from Monday to the end of February, Culinaris, the delicatessen on Mill Road, will have free local delivery with a minimum of £40 and a free click-and-collect service. I was in a garden centre recently and found myself surrounded by bins of seed potatoes, uh, some varieties I'd never heard of. It's that time of the year to start them off, and if it's something you fancy doing, but perhaps don't have a garden, here's Dave Fox to advise. Dave, this is the time when people collect their seed potatoes, but what are seed potatoes? They're not seeds, are they? No, they're, they're, they're tubers, so it's a, um, I suppose they're effectively clones of the of the parent plant and I've got some here. So they're little potatoes? They're little potatoes, yeah. It's a known variety that's been multiplied up by the seed producers in Scotland and then sold to gardeners across the rest of the country. The reason why we buy seed potatoes um, from Scotland is because they can be certified free of certain diseases, aphid-borne diseases, which don't uh, occur further north due to the different climate. That's why it's um, important to use a good seed supplier to get your seed potatoes, rather than just something that's shop-bought or off the market or even something you've saved yourself, because old tubers like that of unknown origin are highly likely to be diseased and what you don't want to do with plant diseases is yeah. complete the cycle and cause yeah. a disease to, re to recur right, the so next these season. seed potatoes you should get from a certified supplier and they are really small potatoes aren't they yes th this tuber of lady crystal an early variety is about five centimeters across and it's uh, a light yellowy brown color and it's got one or two depressions on the surface and in a couple of those I can see tiny white shoots about one or two millimetres long and these are the, these are the first signs of, of growth <laughs> of, this, uh, of this potato. This is an early variety so as the temperature begins to warm up towards the end of winter this is one of the first 
varieties of potato that will think, right, it's time to time to get going now. And but is it time to get going? Isn't it still vulnerable to frost? Would, a, you, would a, you plant that now? Is. No, no, no. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it in the ground now. I mean, you, I suppose you could um, in open ground if you really covered it with lots of mulch material that's really going to hold the uh, keep the keep the temperature up. But um, there's quite a good chance of the potatoes just rotting in the ground especially if we have a late spring a long cold damp spell so that's <laughs> and we don't need to um to plant them in the ground yet um what we but what we should do when we receive our potatoes we should uh, unpack them and put them in a, a light airy frost-free place and where the where the chits can grow um, with some light, so they don't get um, long and straggly and weak. Right. So chits are the shoots. Chits are the chits are the the shoots um, that start from the from the tuber that are going to turn into the um, into the stems of the of the plant. Okay. Look, looking at the at the seed potato, it's uh, so much larger than a lot of the true vegetable seeds that we use. It must be a thousand times the the, the mass of a parsnip seed, for example. So, and I think that shows you that this is a really good choice especially for novice gardeners because there's so much nutrient and energy stored in that tube but it's actually hard to stop it growing it's grown already sit, sit, sitting in my sitting in my hand yeah. and unless you get really bad disease um i think that seed potatoes early potatoes are pretty much a guaranteed crop and so i would say that's a, that's a good one to start with and even if you've not got much space much garden space because potatoes are ideal for container growing so you'd need something like a pretty large pot or maybe if you're in Cambridge City you've got access to one of these uh, old recycling boxes uh, left over since the, uh, re- since the waste collection went to, all to wheelie bins. We've now got lots of these uh, yeah. rather ideal uh, veg growing containers which would be large enough for say uh, two or three um, potato tubers and you pile it up with, with, com- with compost and as the stem of the potato grows you can keep adding compost around it maybe even build up the side of the containers somehow and uh, you can get a a quite a good crop like that and obviously that's something you could put on a patio in limited space and from that one small potato how many would you expect to get oh well how many is quite a good question if you want lots of small potatoes then you can have that um, if you want a smaller number of large potatoes, there's a little trick you can use, which is to, as the chips develop, rub out all but one or two of them to reduce the number of stems. And then the plant will have to concentrate its resources into a smaller number of stems. And so you'll end up with uh, larger spuds, but, but, few, but fewer of them. So, sorry, I didn't really answer your question there. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, you, this, this will multiply up. Oh, I don't know, tens of times yeah. in, in, in terms of in terms of weight, yes. And uh, I do recommend growing early potatoes. If you're going to, you know, perhaps just choose one or two varieties, early potatoes are the ones to go for. Um, firstly, because they mature from, say, mid-June onwards before the late blight really sets in. That's the worst disease of potato. So you're quite likely to get a, get a good crop before the diseases start. Um, but also because these are the potatoes that are more expensive in the shops main crop potatoes they're you know they're just the growing regime is just the same but they're cheap as chips in in the, in the shops so um so yeah so it makes if you've got limited space it makes more sense to grow the early absolutely, varieties absolutely yes yeah one little thing to bear in mind about seed potatoes is that most of them have been treated with a fungicide in order to stop them rotting in store so after handling them wash your hands don't eat them plant them don't eat them
I love that music. That is Green Onions signalling the start of our jobs section. Uh, just two jobs for chefs today. Tradizioni needs a chef, preferably with four years' experience, and Burger Priest in the Grafton Centre is looking for a chef with at least one year's experience, and preferably with a level two certificate in food hygiene. Okay, that brings us to the end of another edition of Flavour. Don't forget that we are here on Alternate Saturdays at 12pm, repeated on Sundays at 2pm, and then again on Mondays at 6pm. And there's also the podcast, which will be available early in the next week. Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1 o'clock is the Cambridgeshire Football Show, and at 2 o'clock Sue Marchant is here with local guests and some of her favourite music. Uh, But that's all from us for today. We'll be back on the 27th of February with lots more food and drink news, jobs and features. But until then, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.